I want to start with this. So last year's election had uh, quite an impact on not only me and my parents, but also my kids. This is Jason, and he asked that we only use his first name. That's because the story he's about to tell caused some friction within his family, and he's not sure how they would feel about it being discussed publicly, so he wants to protect their privacy. Anyway, Jason considers himself left of center, but moderate. He's voted for Democrats and Republicans. He says his parents, being a military family, are more conservative. But I think my parents are, in many ways, very similar to me. Or he did. Because in 2016, Jason was dead set against Donald Trump for president. He saw Trump as a bully. Then on election day, his mom told him she voted for Trump. And (laughs) I was floored, completely floored by that situation. Jason's emotions were raw. He thought about it for several days. Then he decided he wouldn't go to the family Thanksgiving gathering. So I'm probably not affectionately known in my house or in my family as the person who canceled Thanksgiving. I just couldn't see myself going to sit around a table, interact with a bunch of different people, and you know politics is going to come up. He says his family wanted to know why he was putting politics before family, but Jason doesn't see it that way. I just felt like I needed to avoid the situation so that nobody ended up with red wine thrown across the room. Jason says he did go spend Christmas with the family, but not for long. He says there was tension in the air. Everyone was on their best behavior to prevent a blow-up. He hasn't talked much about the election with his mom in the last year, and as we talk, Jason says he fears opening up that conversation. This is perhaps me putting words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're saying the fear is that your mother isn't who you thought she was, or your mother (laughs) is not doing things the way you think she should. Yeah, so I think um, those are putting words in my mouth, and um, (laughs) I... I um, I think that that's true, though. Politics, families, the holidays. It's a perfect recipe for clashes, fraught emotions, and maybe some mashed potatoes thrown up against the wall. And that's the feast we're serving up on this edition of WBHM Politics. I'm Andrew Yeager. Good to have you along. Later, we'll talk about actual warfare, the kind with bullets and soldiers. That's with former Marine Corps Commandant General Charles Krulak. But for now, we'll stick to the familial conflict, something a lot more of us are likely to be absorbed by. In fact, it seems there's something about the holidays that just brings it out. It's not a crazy idea, according to Gary Williams. He's a professional counselor in the Birmingham area. I think a lot of it is there's some expectation even that, you know, people are trying to especially with their own families, be congruent about who they are. And politics is pretty much equal to personal values about things, and there's always affect attached to those values, right? I guess when you use the word affect, maybe you should define that for... uh, Feelings. uh, Feelings as opposed to our thinking. So it's one thing to talk about our beliefs, but sometimes when we're talking about our values, we're really talking about something that's almost at the unconscious. It's even hard to talk about harder to talk about than beliefs, which is a more of a cognitive process, but our values are a little more unconscious, and that's hard to express sometimes, but at the same time, we're passionate about them. So this is part of who I am, and I want to share it with people I love or people I'm related to. 
I think that that's uh, certainly the case often, and I think it could also be uh, the other way around, where I certainly need to go in and turn these people to my way of thinking, <laughs> so that I can, I'm not only congruent, but I'm in a family that feels the same way that I do, and, and, and good luck with that. Let's say some conflict erupts. Are there typical ways people approach that? I think that the, the basic idea is a person has to make a choice to enter into or not enter into one of those conversations. Uh, I guess the quick way to say it would be if you're trying to enter into it to win, don't do it. Be very wary of that because you're probably not going to for all kinds of good reasons. Uh, if you're going into it because uh, you want to be a peacemaker uh, or you also feel a strong need to, for your relatives and family and people to know you, to know you as you truly are, that's uh, probably a, a better safe ground to be in. You're not going to win. Why is that? Well, uh, social psychologists have talked about this for years. A lot of people are familiar with the term confirmation bias, you know, the idea that we tend to accept and ingest information that we already agree with, and we tend to reject information that we don't. But a little lesser one, and, and, and the first is very problematic, I think it's where we are as a culture right now. Uh, the other one is called backfire effect. That's a little less known. That one basically says that we like to believe that if we present good, concrete, factual evidence about something that goes against what another person believes, that they will say, oh, I have been wrong all this time. And now that you've presented me with these facts, I certainly see your point of view. Thank you so much for straightening that out for me. Uh, they don't do that. Uh, almost none of us do that. And it really has nothing to do with intelligence. It has to do with how much affect is in place at the time. There's a lot of affect when we talk about politics because we're really talking about our own internal beliefs and moral systems. How much affect do these sorts of conflicts have if you're thinking about families or extended families? I, I would think that, you know, it could be a source of grievance or calloused emotions that build up over time. I guess how damaging? Well, sure, because we begin to, we begin to lose the debate itself and the topic and it becomes personal. Mm -hmm. And then we sadly begin to think that the other person is, is less than or less smart or an idiot course that gets away in interpersonal relationships and you can feel that in a gathering through the course of your professional life do you see flashpoints around politics being more sources of conflict people having more concerns in their relationships around these sorts of things yes <laughs> absolutely yes for all the reasons we've we've talked about a little bit already there's already passion there and we're talking about who we are as individuals i believe that people can uh, can talk politics with friends and even people they don't know at the airport or something, often better they can in a family situation because there's a lot at stake there. There's a lot at stake there. Sure. I think that some people come into those gatherings already uh, expecting there might be a problem. So they already are sort of physiologically roused when they go in. So they're, they're, they're primed a little bit to enter a battle. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. How often do you see these political issues or beliefs form a real, you know, real rift or a long-term or, you know, maybe lifetime split between people? Often. Often. I mean, there are people that uh, draw a boundary on even going to these gatherings at all. And that may not be a bad idea. If they feel like they really can't handle it, that's probably, a, that, that's not a bad play. But yes, you see it uh, quite often. And another way I see it is that my practice <laughs> tends to 
clients I've never seen or haven't seen in a year, and that's a key word in a year, often pop back up around Thanksgiving and Christmas. So my, my practice actually populates with a whole different group of people, and I think that's pretty common in the counseling biz. How might one approach one of these situations if they do expect over the coming weeks that they're going to be with that uncle or aunt or you know someone that either doesn't see things their way or might be on the offense? Sure. I, I, would, uh, I would think that a lot of that just has to do with communication skills and, and communication um, awareness. I think the real key in when I, when I do relationship counseling with families and couples, one of the key concepts that we almost always cover is related to that agree to disagree, you know, concept, which is way easier said than done, right? But how you actually do that is there is a way to value a person but disagree with what they think. And that's what we need to do with families. There's a real magic to being able to affirm somebody and validate where they're coming from, even if you don't agree, because sometimes that's plenty. Sometimes that's enough. And that can prevent the other person to want to engage in that battle because they just wanted to be heard to begin with. So more specifically, what can you do if you're in this situation over the holidays with uh, you know, either someone who's antagonistic or just conflicts erupted in the room? Sure. The way that you're able to validate someone, even if you disagree with them, is to use good body language, good tone, good eye contact, and to actually listen to what they say. One of the things that gets in the way of communication is that often when we disagree with someone, we are actually rehearsing what, we, what our argument is while they are speaking. And when I do exercises with couples, you'd be amazed at how the listener can never really repeat back what somebody said because they didn't hear it to begin with. So there's that. There's listening. There's also just slowing down, you know, there's just slowing things down a little bit, and that keeps people a little more calm. That's Gary Williams. He's a professional counselor in Birmingham. When I was in high school, I remember my uh, government teacher saying, well, a lot of people get their political beliefs from their families. This is Zach Stoltzner. People whose parents are Republican uh, tend to grow up and become Republicans. People whose parents are Democrats typically um, grow up to become Democrats. But this wasn't true for Zach. He says growing up in Hoover, his family was generally conservative. He found himself drifting to the left through high school and college. Zach says they weren't an overtly political family, but there were a few flashpoints, like one in 2012 when Republican Mitt Romney challenged Democratic President Barack Obama. His aunt called him up and said, Hey, I have a gift certificate for you to your favorite restaurant, but first I want to know, who are you going to vote for in the election? And it kind of took me back. I thought, well, thank you, but I'm a little confused. Zach told her he would vote for Obama. And what ensued was 24 hours of a back and forth through text and phone about why he shouldn't vote that way. With the gift certificate hanging in the balance, he stuck with Obama. And if that means I don't get a gift certificate to this restaurant, then... It's really no big deal. I'll pay to go to dinner myself, but thank you for the offer. His aunt, she gave it to him anyway, and they acted like nothing happened. Zach thinks she was just trying to do something nice. Somehow it got conflated with her curiosity about Zach's vote, and it snowballed. He says when these kind of things have happened, they've had to agree to disagree. You know, as my grandfather would say, the only family you're going to have, so you have to make it work somehow. 
We're talking about families, politics, and the holidays on this edition of WBHM Politics. But we thought it was worth delving into real warfare. And who better to do that with than this man? How do you identify yourself nowadays? Uh, well, now, now they call me, because of the students, they call me Gen K, but General Chuck Krulak. General Krulak is the former president of Birmingham Southern College. He's also a former commandant of the Marine Corps and member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And back in the 1990s, the U.S. was on top of the world militarily, fresh off its overwhelming victory in Operation Desert Storm. But Krulak was thinking about something else. He started to see cultural and religious warfare popping up, often with non-state actors. Everyone saw American power on display through CNN, so anyone wanting to attack U.S. interests couldn't do it so conventionally. They would have to change the rules of warfare. And that's what they did. Think al-Qaeda or Mogadishu. Krulak says the question became, what does that kind of conflict look like? The answer, according to him, is what he called the three-block war. And the three-block war basically says that at any given time and near simultaneously, you'll have soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines wrapping a child in swaddling clothes, feeding it, taking care of it, and we call that humanitarian assistance. Right after that, you'd have the same individuals with their weapons out, keeping two warring factions apart, and that was called peacekeeping. And then right after that, you'd have what we call mid-intensity conflict, actual war fighting. And the difference was this was going to happen near simultaneously within three city blocks. And so how do you develop, in our case, a Marine who can fight and win in that chaotic atmosphere? And that became the issue. And I'll get to the how in a moment, yeah. but I'm, as you discuss this with your colleagues and people who think about these matters, um, and, and this is perhaps too simplistic, but I think about the military being in a Cold War stance for several decades, and then when communism fell, non-state actors and, yeah. and, and smaller conflicts erupted. How much of a shift was this for military leadership through the 1990s as, as the wider world changes? Yeah, well— People thought I was crazy. You, you've got to be kidding me. What we ought to be doing is buying more tanks. We ought to be buying more uh, artillery. We ought to be buying more rolling stock. And I was sitting there saying, you're, you're buying equipment. You're buying capability for a war that's not going to take place because everybody who we're going to be fighting has seen the power and might of America. And so basically the Marine Corps pretty much alone. We, we developed a warfighting laboratory. We tested concepts. We tested uh, doctrine. We tested tactics in order to see how we were going to fight this. That question, how? How do you train someone to be in a situation that has seemingly such competing interests? Uh, the first thing you have to do is inculcate within each individual Marine a value system that said that you respect everybody, their race, their religion, uh, their color, their sexual orientation. What Baseline, you've got to start thinking in terms of a culture war as well as a bullets war. And if you can do that, uh, you will build what I called in term the strategic corporal. 
And what I meant by the strategic corporal was the idea that everything that that young Marine did on the battlefield or around the battlefield at the tactical level could have strategic implications. And, and the greatest example of that was the ability of a young enlisted person who took her cell phone and took pictures of what was taking place in a prison called Abu Ghraib. The way we were treating the Muslim prisoners, although it was just a tactical act by some group of people, had massive impact across the Muslim world because it was showing a total disrespect for their religion. And we had to get it across to our Marines that those little acts could have monumental impact on the fight we were fighting. And so we did a lot of cultural training. We did a lot of values training. We talked a lot about uh, the enemy and what they brought to the battlefield in the way of their own value system, why we had to understand it because it was so dangerous to not understand it. I wonder, as you outline this framework with traditional warfare, humanitarian work, peacekeeping work, it feels there's almost an inherent contradiction, maybe paradox is the right word, with traditional warfare on one side and humanitarian aid on the other. In a small geographic area, it seemed that those would, those efforts would clash. Yeah, well, they did. And so a lot of the effort that we went into was to ensure that they didn't clash. Were we always successful? No. I mean, when you have uh, Abu Ghraib, you have uh, um, individuals urinating on the bodies of dead uh, enemy. These types of things were 180 out from what we wanted the strategic corporal to be doing. But at the end of the day, all of our exercises, Andrew, were tailored towards the three-block war. So you'd have, in each exercise we did, you'd have an element of peacekeeping, you'd have an element of humanitarian assistance, and you had an element of the, the actual fighting. The issue in what was hard to do was to make that all happen almost simultaneously so that at one time, you know, 30 minutes, uh, uh, individuals got an issue with a child who's obviously been hurt in, in the fight uh, and then at the same time, you have parents who you're trying to deal with. It, it, the next moment, you're getting shot at. So it's, it was tough, and we had, to, we had to train to do it. I can see where, you know, this is a helpful framework if you're on the ground, but I can also see where you need so much information about the situation you're in. For instance, I'm thinking of, you know, post-9-11 conflicts where you could be interacting with someone in a village in, um, in Afghanistan and— you may think that they are, quote-unquote, on your side, but they're actually aligned with uh, some, some tribal force that, yeah. that, is, that is not. I guess, what do you do with that confusion, that lack of information, that, just that morass? Well, first off, you'd, you'd be shocked at the technology each individual soldier carries with him. Situational awareness, uh, whether it's the location of the enemy or where he was last seen, uh, visual on a computer screen that they carry with them. It's on their chest. They flip it down and they can look and see exactly what's going on around them. takes a lot of what we used to call the fog of war away. It doesn't take it all away, but it takes a lot of it away. The enemy of my enemy is my friend is a huge issue. 
particularly when you're you're fighting in the three block war because in a matter of minutes you can make a mistake that would turn a friend into an enemy and you have to be really careful about that the best way to fight that is through providing to that individual marine soldier sailor airman the type of data and information uh, that we can collect and provide as rapidly as possible. Technology's made a big difference on the battlefield. So you were having these discussions starting in the 1990s. Yeah. You know, we think about how, at least in the public eye, war has changed after 9-11. Yeah. Um, I've seen some commentary on your ideas suggesting there's a four-block war, adding an, an information element yeah, to yeah, it. Sure. I guess, do you see this naturally evolving somewhere over the next uh, few decades? Yeah, it's, I would, if I were to use a instead of the three-block war, I'd use hybrid, hybrid war, which takes in the three blocks. It takes in the chaos that's found in the three-block war, but adds on to it uh, cyber. It adds on to it weapons of mass destruction. And, and here I don't mean you know, continental ballistic missiles. I'm talking about a little bottle of sarin gas or something along that line. So it makes it more difficult, and and that's why the the idea of modern warfare becomes deadlier the further we get along in technology. General Charles Krulak is a former president of Birmingham Southern College. He's also a former commandant of the Marine Corps. Okay, one more thing before we go. My name is Terry Douglas. And she explains via Skype she voted for Donald Trump. She doesn't like everything he's done, but she doesn't believe he's destroying the country the way some of his critics contend. She says her son used to be very conservative. And since he has gone off to college and gone to law school, he has become much more, I hate to say liberal in his thinking. He says it's subjective. I tend to think it's liberal. (laughs) The two of them have strong opinions and they go at it. Terry says they kind of enjoy it. Everyone else just sort of shakes their head, rolls their eyes, and say, y'all are crazy. <laughs> Maybe that might not be a good thing. <laughs> like a lot of times he'll send me a text and he'll go, well, you're an idiot, and I'll just copy his text back. She says they have had a few really bad arguments this year, and sometimes they just have to hit pause, take a time out. And I always try to think, what if my child were to be killed tomorrow? And I wasn't speaking to him because I was mad at him about politics. I mean, I would never forgive myself. Terry says she's not really sure how they're able to do what they do when politics seems to make so many others uncomfortable or fracture relationships. For her? I love my child, and politics is politics. And I think if everyone at the end of the day would realize that not everyone is always going to agree, and that's what's made this country the great country that it is. At Terry's Thanksgiving table, though, there is a rule. No politics. The arguing can come later. That's it for this helping of WBHM Politics. The show is produced by Gigi Duban and myself. Our theme song is by local Birmingham guitarist Eric Essex and is called Find Your Way. We want to know what you think. Send us your thoughts through the WBHM Facebook page or tweet at us. We're at WBHM or you can use the hashtag WBHM Politics. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already and write a review. It really helps us out. I'm Andrew Yeager. Thanks for listening. From all of us at WBHM, have a happy Thanksgiving.